Welcome to Crush Disappointment. In this episode, I'm chatting to Rob about his crush on Debbie Harry. And in this chat, I quote Wayne Kostenbaum from his essay, Debbie Harry at the Supermarket. And I say the word aluminium, like aluminum. And that's because Wayne Kostenbaum's American. And at the time, I thought that that was the right way to go. But then I immediately regretted it and felt a deep sense of shame. So. Uh, speaking of shame, I think the previous episodes, all the old episodes, I think are going to be available now after some sort of trial that I'm doing. Um, they'll probably disappear at some point, but, um, having, I've not gone and listened to them because I can remember the things that I've said and I regret a lot of them. So, um, just take them with a pinch of salt, I guess. Um, can I tangent off salt? Salt improves flavor like, no, I can't. So, um, Wayne Kostenbaum, uh, I'm going to read one of his quotes because I feel like that's, it's quite a good one and it's sort of, well, I'll just read it. So, I've got the ineffability blues. I feel paralyzed by my inability to describe why I love Debbie Harry. I'm trapped like Edgar Allan Poe's guilty narrator in the Telltale Heart. Alone in a chamber with a ticker whose maniacal thumping, a time bombs, declares, you have 20 minutes to describe Debbie Harry's ineffable gorgeousness and irony. And if you fail, you'll be executed. If I decide not to explain her splendour and to let it remain comment-free, then something in me will have perished. So I imagine that's quite close to how Rob feels about Debbie Harry. Which, and actually in this conversation, Rob didn't know we were recording for a lot of it because of some miscommunication, I think, which which is pretty much my fault. So I don't know if this falls under entrapment, but um, here's the crush. No, I was thinking about it because I, we we said we might do Debbie Harry, I, and I had a chat with Chris on the way around. <laughs> it was funny. She said, um, "So I said, oh, well, I might do Debbie Harry," and she said, "Yeah, like you and every other sixteen-year-old boy <laughs> of that time." And which was which was interesting because I think in those days, because there was only you know there was o- there was only the TV, there was only the TV on top of the pops, or it was the radio as well. Mm-hmm. But um, you didn't have the sort of choice of. Um, so you couldn't, you know, like you can do now with a streaming service, you can choose what you listen to. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't like that yeah, yeah. back then. All you got to hear was what was in the top 40 because there were only a handful of, um, there were only a really small number of TV stations, maybe three, I don't know. And then slightly more radio stations. But of course, you couldn't pick them all up mm-hmm. because it was medium wave, not FM in those days. So, you know, it was really hard to pick up something that... There was, you know, in Radio Luxembourg, which I think was a sort of pirate radio station. Some people get, some people couldn't because it didn't transmit that okay. that far. So you you really only ever listened to stuff that was that I think the music industry decided you should listen to, mm-hmm. which was broadly what was in the charts, which yeah. was very sort of and you know, and then you got sort of big big bands. So everybody tended to, so everybody did tend to like the same thing, mm-hmm. I think, um, and it was only. Yeah, I suppose it was only, you know, you got sort of cable services, I guess. I think it was America was a bit ahead, but you got MTV and things like that in the 80s, mm. where suddenly you could start to see more, you know, you could choose more what yeah, yeah. sort of niche you fitted into as opposed to we all listened to the top 40 and, you know, li- liked what we liked out of that. So did you find that's like, was that like a transition where if everyone's liking the same thing, I guess... I'm thinking, I'm thinking more like the uh, like American high school movie where you have like your goths and like all the people who listen to different music. Did that not really exist? And I think it did. I think it did actually. Yeah, it did because 
I, the reason I say that is because they were they were definitely a set of people who liked heavy metal mm-hmm. at school. And uh, my brother was in a class. So you know, me and my two brothers went to the same school. And I was the youngest. And then there was one two years ahead of me and one two years ahead of him. So we were sort of split by uh, um, those years. And my brother just above me, when I was in the third form, he was in the fifth form. And the fifth form was the GCSE mm-hmm. year. And it's where people, you know, people get a little bit sort of edgy, don't they? Because they're 16 and some of them are going to leave school at that point. So they all get a bit unruly, I think. And I ended up with the moniker brother of the snitch because my brother (laughs) told, I think they, uh, because of these, some of these edgy uh, lads in his year, every so often they thought it'd be amusing to do something like smash a desk to pieces. Okay. But then instead of sort of, hiding it they would pile it up neatly as a sort of kit <laughs> to make a desk so the teacher would come in and there was a desk that had been reduced to you know matchwood but piled up neatly okay. <laughs> and uh, which was these sort of really time to leave school yeah lads um and so the teacher's solution was that everybody in the class would end up getting detention and having to contribute to replace whatever it was wouldn't be that much the desk and my brother was sort of morally indignant about this so he when it went when you know the perpetrators refused to confess I think he went and told on them <laughs> so anyway I ended up as brother of the snitch and they in a sort of light-hearted way because you know it wasn't, it wasn't like a very edgy school it yeah. was like a grammar school but um you know mo- most third formers fifth formers are just sort of like a sea of irrelevance aren't they <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But when your brother of the snitch, <laughs> suddenly you get raised. But but it, but it turned out. I think in the end, it turned out to be in a sort of um, in a positive, su- not supportive way, but in a positive way. You know, because they were always sort of bantering me when I was going in the class. Anyway, this was a big, big heavy metal clique in his class. You know, sort of ACDC and Deep Purple and mm-hmm. bands that now are just sort of well, they're all sort of slightly ridiculous, aren't they? Because it's all sort of Ozzy Osbourne type stuff. Mm-hmm. But um. In those days, it was quite... I think, you know, when you're approaching that from beneath, it's quite threatening, that sort of music, mm. you know. Uh, um, we might talk about punk. I, I was talking to Chris about punk, and cause Chris is a bit older than me. She sort of looked at punk. She, she was, like, at university at the time. She looks at punk and says, oh, it was, a bit, it was all a bit stupid, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, I was approaching it from, you know, the other age. Yeah. So I was probably, I don't know, 12 or 13 when it started. And you would see punks out, and you'd find that really... I used to find that really uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I like, oh God, I might get you know, the, the crap beaten out of me. Because I think that, you know, in the way it's sort of, I think it's less so these days. I don't know that, I'm not sure anything ever happened, but you felt very threatened when you yeah. stumbled across them. I think my um, definition of punk must be, I don't know, off, because I don't know, listening to Blondie, I would have thought it more of disco than punk. How yeah, it was, it, it, it was, no, you're right. It's It was a sort of post-punk thing. There were, uh, so, you know, punk is sort of Sex Pistols, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and we were, we were all not at that concert. So they, you know, that concert that had 60 people out, but everybody says they were yeah. there, which makes it 600,000 people. I can't remember what concert it was supposed to be. So there was a set of bands at, you know, at that point, some of which sort of morphed into proper bands, you know, because you know, even bands like this, not quite the specials. They were they were a bit more sort of a sort of scar revival done by Two Tone. But there's a bunch of bands that came, sort of new wave bands that came out of the back, and Blondie were part of that, really. Um, but did but did quite a good job. You know, they were a bit like 
in the early days, so the first time I saw Debbie Harry, because uh, Chris said to me, "Oh, she said, yeah, but she, she, you know, she, she didn't sort of play on her looks. You know, she, you know, she kept she in some of the videos, she's in a bin bag and things like mm-hmm. that. I mean, it was almost a sort of, you know, a sort of, you know, the antithesis of sort of a beautiful lead singer. But I, I have to say, the first time she turned up, she was in a swimsuit mm-hmm. and a sort of um, a man's jacket, and she had this sort of way of, you know, being a very attractive woman." Um, lead singer but not not really appearing to care mm. you know as opposed to a sort of very manufactured one you know you know like the two women who were in ABBA mm-hmm. similarly very good looking but I think a lot more was made of that mm-hmm. I mean punk was you know if we're, if, if we're sort of honest punk was a bit shit really but okay. I think it was a I mean it was consciously shit it was it <laughs> was um it, it was we're all sick of the sort of you know overblown overproduced you know, in because you you had things like prog rock, I think, in the sort of mm-hmm. early seventies, or big rock bands, or you know, big sort of pop bands, and I think punk was a sort of a bunch of sort of disaffected youth in the UK, sort of saying, well, you know, there's really nothing for us here, so what we do is form a band, none of us can play any instruments, and we'll just smash them on stage. <laughs> yeah. So if you said everyone was listening to the charts, was the punk stuff? getting into the charts or was there a different way that you'd get into these sort of I think there was yeah I think if you were a little bit older because I was quite young when punk started um so Chris said oh but you bought NME didn't you and I said I said well not when you were 12 you didn't Mm -hmm. buy NME I think if you were sort of 18 or 16 I was like you might buy NME so I think there was a sort of there was definitely sort of live music and then there was there was a way of accessing live music but you know it was was a bit harder again because I in in those days Trying to think which way round it was. In those days, I think you made your money off recordings, and you didn't really make much money off touring. And I think it's the other way round mm. now. I don't think you make much off recordings, but you know the tours are really well produced and very commercial now. Uh, so I think you make a lot more. So bands did tour, but it was almost reluctantly promoting an album because mm. that was where they were going to make all the money. So so there was a sort of live music thing. We had to work quite hard to go and access it. So living in on the south coast. We had a venue in Poole, which is where I lived. And, you know, so you got some bands coming through. But if you really wanted to see more music, you had to travel up to London. Mm. And travelling up to London, I mean, it's hard to imagine. In fact, I find it hard imagining a world without the internet. So if you you sort of think, well, how do you get your tickets for a concert then Mm. when there isn't the internet? (laughs) Um, and, And, you know, there were people who, you know, they were sort of, ticket agencies that sold them so but you you sort of how you found out about them I guess they published a tour and then you sent them a letter yeah in the post <laughs> and then they'd mail you tickets back and so you had physical tickets and then you had to go and get a train and trains you know they, they probably didn't run as late as they run these days you know so and, and you wouldn't have had a uh, well actually funny that, that you wouldn't have had a car I was going to say but you know maybe that's similar to today because actually do you drive no no, so actually I noticed a lot of young people don't. Actually, we probably had more of a thing of it. So we all learned to drive and got cars because you couldn't really rely on public transport mm. in those days. That's one good thing privatisation has done for us. <laughs> <laughs> At least there are trains. Yeah. Um, so punk was basically the whole music industry is shit and, and music shit and we're going to smash up our instruments and gob on people. Yeah. But it's a sort of, you know, it's a sort of, you know, the anthems of disaffected youth. So in the 70s, nobody had a job either. and mm-hmm. All those people who had a job were always on strike. Yeah. Um, you know, I know uh, the Labour Party are very enthusiastic about nationalising everything. Mm-hmm. But 
you know, our memory of things being nationalised, because um, they were all sold off in the 80s, when it was the 70s, is just nobody would do any work when it was nationalised, because, you know, they never got sacked. So, mm-hmm. you know, the coal miner strikes a bit before your time. You've probably heard of the coal miner strike. But mm-hmm. in the 70s, everybody was on strike. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sort of car firms, you know, it's British Leyland, everyone was on strike in British Leyland. Mm-hmm. Um, the rubbish men went on strike all the time, so nobody collected the rubbish. So it just piled up in the streets. People who did funerals went on strikes, and you know, funerals or cremations. So they're like having to store all these. But in there are pictures of the centre of London with just rubbish piled everywhere because mm-hmm. nobody could be asked to go to work, um, which is our memory. And then the um, and then the electricity workers went on strike. So you only had power four days a week, and three days a week you didn't have power. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was we weren't quite so dependent on it then as we are now so I think you had a freezer but freezers weren't so much a part I mean if you lose your electricity for 24 hours your freezer's sunk isn't yeah. it um, in those days you know it wasn't so much a part of people's lives but um, you know you did your homework by candlelight and that sort of, that sort of mm-hmm. thing in those days so I think punk came out of you know Britain's not working sort of thing but then then it went into sort of you know because inevitably the music industry catches up and said and, and sort of works out that what people want is sort of edgy nihilism. And mm. We need to manufacture a few bands that look a bit more yeah. like that. So I think they're, they, you know, all the new, all, all the stuff that came beyond was, was the sort of, you know, the, the, com- the commercialisation of the sort of post-punk era. Yeah, was it, um, in sort of a reference, I guess, of, uh, I remember, was it the whole thing with Nirvana being like, Nirvana was very anti-MTV, but nothing sold better on MTV than anti-MTV. And so they sort of became a part of the system themselves. Yeah, it's, a, it's sort of madness. It's, I suppose in one, yeah, because you, inevitably you get caught up by the commercialisation of anything because it, it, you know, that's the sort of essence of capitalism, isn't it? So people look at, you know, inevitably the money-making machine works out, well, how do we, this is what the people want, so how do we make money out of that? And yes, but it is interesting how people can sort of simultaneously sort of maintain this sort of dichotomy in their minds. You know, I'm watching M- MTV to see a band who tell me that MTV is shit. Yeah. Um, and I can't see the iron in it. But, you know, uh, and, then, and, then the, and then the 80s happened. Mm. So, you know, 1979 is a very good political history of the 70s. Mm-hmm if you like, books called When the Lights Went Out, which I read and you sort of think, yeah, that was that was my childhood because I was born in 64. So I went from sort of six to 16 in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and you read it and you sort of think, yeah, that was exactly what, like growing up in, in the UK was in the 70s. It was, it actually, it, it didn't feel shit at the time because, mm-hmm. you know, you, you couldn't sort of analyse it in the way that you could today because everything was a bit sort of, you know, homespun, you know, mm. three TV channels, you made your own sort of entertainment. And, you know, I come from a quite big family, two brothers and two sisters. So, you know, we'd be out on our bikes or throwing bangers at old ladies or that sort of thing, <laughs> which, which you're not allowed to do today, yeah. but, um, <laughs> allegedly. Uh, but, but, you know, but you sort of entertain yourself a bit more. But, um, uh, you know, 79, then Margaret Thatcher gets in and capitalism becomes all very acceptable. Mm-hmm. I think in the UK, uh, so the UK itself does better, but then, you know, it becomes acceptable to try and, you know, make more money and better yourself. And you see that through a sort of, you know, if you think of the bands in the 80s, that you know, like Spandau Valley or Duran Duran, mm-hmm. they, 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 you know, they go from being quite sort of, if you, if you look at the trend, I, I was a bit of a Duran Duran fan at the time, actually. You look at sort of Duran Duran, their first album, which is, you know, them, them in Birmingham sort of, you know, getting a sort of a record deal, but it's all a bit sort of, 
new romantic and sort of edgy. Mm. And then their second album suddenly goes to, you know, they're sailing on yachts in <laughs> pastel coloured suits, matching yeah. pastel coloured suits, mm-hmm. you know, singing from the front of a yacht sort of, um, you know, on their way to a sort of sandy, mm. sandy beach somewhere. So, um, which was all very acceptable in, mm. in, you know, in the 80s. So if, if in the 70s you were having sort of um, days where you didn't have electricity, was, I don't know, how did America seem? I guess, because I feel like when I was watching TV or listening to music, I don't think I made a distinction between UK and US stuff as a kid. And I feel like it, maybe that was MTV brought that on. Did you have a clear distinction? Did America seem a certain way? Yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question, actually, because I, uh, you, d- you, definitely, you, d- you definitely had America. So there were American TV shows and in fact, you know, a lot of them, because I think, because um, I think America felt, because you know, I was I'm, I'm, I was born in America, my parents lived in America, so I think we we sort of had a sort of you know sub subconsciously as family, we had a sort of an, a, a more of an underlying interest in that, I guess, because you know my parents mm. have both sort of met there and lived there for a while, so um, you know those sorts of things sort of came into our conscience, I think, because my, my parents... Liked, so my parents liked going out for pizzas and, and burgers and that sort of... So I think it was much more a thing in the US, mm-hmm. even in the 60s when they lived there, 50s and 60s when they lived there, whereas it wasn't really a thing that much in the UK. So when you'd talk to people about... that, they oh, you went out to have a pizza? How odd? What's a pizza sort of thing? <laughs> I mean, literally. Yeah. Um, and and um, so, I, so, yeah, I think we had an underlying interest. And a lot of the bands that came through probably in a bad way were things like the Osmonds or the Monkeys. If you take the Monkeys as being a sort of manufactured Beatles mm. um, and then there's the Osmonds and then there was a thing called the Partridge Family. So there's a lot of TV tie-ins to bands. The Partridge Family were like, uh, you know, there's big American families who were all musicals. It was a TV show. And and uh, David Cassidy came out of that. I don't know if you know David Cassidy. was a mm-hmm. sort of 70s singer, a bit of a heartthrob. Chris had a f- poster of him on home <laughs> so although they had you know chris would sort of say oh yeah but they had all that great sort of west coast stuff like um the eagles and you know the beach boys who were proper mm-hmm. bands in their own right it, it was all a bit more mainstream and commercial as opposed to the uk which i, I yeah i think in those days was um well i think the uk is always punched above its weight in music terms mm-hmm. but i think in those days it I mean, it definitely invented everything that... It seemed like it invented everything that was going to happen. Yeah. Because I think there were things that looked a bit like punk in in the US uh, when punk happened in the UK, but but not in the same sort of, you know, with the same sort of level of disaffection and nihilism that mm. you had it in the... It would have all ended... It were, I think it would have ended up much more quickly into New Wave, you know, because there, was was there was some punk club that they were all hanging around... Um, Blondie were hanging around and they sort of got booted out of there because they're a bit shit actually. They couldn't, really, <laughs> they couldn't really play very well. Um, whereas I think, uh, you know, I'm trying to think, the Ramones and people like that were a bit mm. a bit more sort of commercial because they actually could play. And you can hear that in some of the early Blondie stuff. They, I think the albums are sort of better produced, but their early stuff is really mm-hmm. a bit ropey because they couldn't really, they couldn't play in time. I, take, I have to say, I take my hat off to, I don't know if you play an instrument, but... No. <laughs> Actually, I mean, playing an instrument. I'm thinking playing an instrument in time with other people in yeah. bands is quite it's quite a tricky thing to do. So yeah, I think I think this whole punk thing wouldn't really have happened. I think it would have just, you know, you would have had a sort of subculture that then turned into sort of new wave. If, you know, bands like Talking Heads and Blondie and people like that. Mm. And uh, I don't because I think there's a time 
um, you, you can validate this or not. I think there's a time when you pay a lot of attention to music, yeah. which I think for me was probably sort of 15 to 25. And then, and then you drift off it a bit. Mm. Or maybe it's 15 until you have kids or something like that. And then you might listen to stuff when your kids listen to stuff. Mm-hmm. But you sort of, so I don't really know the 90s from a music point of view. Yeah. I mean, I know the late 70s and the 80s really well, but mm-hmm. I was 26 by the end of the 80s. And apart from the odd band that you hear, you tend to just listen to the bands yeah, you always yeah. listen to. So if you, you're sort of connecting the music to the political context and the sort of the time in your life, yes. how do you react to people who come later? So like my example was I saw like a teenager wearing a Nirvana t-shirt and my immediate response was, no, you weren't old enough to like that. And then I, then I realized that I wasn't either. I'd come to it late, but I hated them because they were, I deemed them as being less authentic than I was. Yeah, it's tricky. I, I don't know. I When you get old, mm-hmm. like I am now, I, I think you you find you're quite positive about that okay. um, because it's a, it's a bit of a sort of nostalgia thing. I think you'd, hate to think that things that were important to you when you were young nobody cares about anymore so when you see somebody wearing a band t-shirt from you know your era you sort of think oh well, that's that's great isn't it because you know that well maybe that's a bit edgy mm-hmm. to like those sorts of bands now uh, there was a um there's a photo of shakira wearing a yes t-shirt i don't know if you know yes the band mm-hmm. so yes are a big early 70s prog rock band and my eldest brother so this sort of shows the timeline just got into them right at sort of the end of their sort of mainstreamness mm-hmm. but they were a, i mean they were a good band with but prog rock was even worse than sort of you know you know rock bands because they obsessed over everything musical they, they were the ones who every track was 18 minutes long oh. and it's like a you know a, a movement in a symphony and mm-hmm. it's and i think that punk was a reaction against you know it's a sort of mental isn't it mm-hmm. Let's just have three chords and smash our instruments instead. Um, but Shakira turned up in a Yes t-shirt, and you sort of think, "Oh, I like Yes," and Shakira likes Yes. <laughs> so that's so I must, in some way, maybe this has come full cycle, and now it's cool again. Mm-hmm. And it only happens with certain bands. It happens with people like the Beatles or mm-hmm. David Bowie. It doesn't really happen with the Osmonds. So mm-hmm. it, it does have a way of sort of sifting the sort of wheat from the chaff. You know, mm-hmm. you sort of think, oh, that they must have been quite good then if yeah. people are still listening to them today. Well, I think bands have a lot more longevity today than they did. I mean, most of the bands I, you know, listened to when I was young mm-hmm. are, are still around and still touring. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, a, in a good way, because you get quite an age range. I mean, we went to, um, I mean, Fleetwood Mac were even a bit ahead of my time. Chris would listen to more, but we went to, see Fleetwood Mac when they toured a couple of years ago and the girls came with us and mm. there was a whole age range. Yeah. The people who liked Fleetwood Mac originally, mm-hmm. you know, like Chris, and then sort of probably two more generations of yeah of that. I went to Lauren Hill's gig at the O2 and there was a bit where they were, the um, person before her was talking about how it was like a intergenerational tour and there was lots of different people and they, she sort of did the, got the crowd to cheer if you were between this bracket, this bracket, this bracket. Okay. And then they said, uh, the bracket which I fell in and then some people from the earlier brackets booed <laughs> and then oh isn't that great and then <laughs> no why would you do that and then the, some younger then the younger generation and then I found myself booing them and it was <laughs> it's <laughs> <laughs> oh that's that's fantastic isn't it so yeah I, 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 I think the good thing is Matt as you get older you become a lot more enthusiastic mm-hmm. 
about these things. Because, you know, frankly, I know if we went up and see see Chris's mum and dad and put some Glenn Miller on and mm. enthused about it, they would have loved that. <laughs> yes, we always knew it was snazzy music. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and, and, and I... I, th- I think there's just a, in general, there's a thing about nostalgia mm-hmm. as you get older. So I, I probably now listen to, if I listen to any music, it probably is disproportionately music from when I was, you know, in that 16 or 15 to 25 mm-hmm. age range, which sort of defines you, I think. Do you feel like, um, I guess with someone like Blondie and like future generations listening to it, is it, would you feel like, I would be missing something from not having the cultural context or that I would perhaps even be bringing something new to it from my experience. Yeah, one, one of the things that I think, if you lived in the 70s, mm-hmm. the 70s was a lot more black and white than life is today. Okay. Well, may, may, maybe not uh, maybe not quite black and white. I think, you know, the 50s is definitely black and white. If Sorry, I, I'll explain what I mean. Okay. <laughs> By which I mean, if you sort of think of life and it's almost true when you look back. You look back at the fifties, and you only have, you can only ever see the fifties in black and white because that's all the footage is black and white. Mm-hmm. But it but it sort of felt a bit like that as well. You know, you didn't have the sort of you know multiculturalism. I mean, you know, it existed, but I think for most people, if you lived wherever you lived, you know, you lived in a place like Ashby, you know, you wouldn't experience anything other than a sort of very you know Midlands town presentation of of Englishness. Mm-hmm which feels a bit sort of two-dimensional and black and white. Um, I think the 70s had sort of moved a bit beyond that. I think, we'd, we, you know, there was a bit more of a sort of international influence on us. You know, there was, you know, a huge amount of sort of mixing of cultures in, in London, if you, you know, if you ever got to London. Mm-hmm. But it's it's still... Um, I'll give you a practical example. I remember going to... we. I mean, we had some odd sh- shops where I lived in... We lived in South West London then. You know, there's some odd shops, but I remember we went to a shop once and it must have been a little sort of grocers because you didn't even really have big... You had supermarkets, but not quite, you know, the same way mm-hmm. as you did. So you'd take a shopping bag and go to your local shops and shop there. And I remember going with my eldest brother and uh, we went to some shop and they had spaghetti in a... in wrapped in the blue paper. You see that a bit more today. So mm-hmm. it's sort of the... It's a bit of an Italian thing. And he said, well, I've had this spaghetti stuff. It's quite nice. We should get some. And he, so this, let's say this is 74 or something like that. We bought the spaghetti, which I'd never heard of. And I think we got some tomato puree or something like that. Yeah. I took the tomato puree and we made spaghetti with tomato puree in it. And it was like, my God, this is fantastic. <laughs> and I bet Italian people eat this all the time. It's so delicious. Uh-huh. Now, how old would you have to be in the UK before you came across spaghetti? I mean, okay. you'd be, you'd be two or something. Yeah. I mean, probably younger than that because it's in all those. Baby foods mm-hmm. now, but you imagine that you know you could you could get to the age of ten, mm-hmm. and you'd never really heard of spaghetti, and you had some, and and you just put tomato puree on it, and you thought that was most delicious yeah. thing, you know. So when something like Blondie mm-hmm. happened, it sort of exploded in a way that I don't think bands do today because this, you know, it's people have such bigger horizons mm-hmm. than you did in the seventies. You didn't really know about anything outside of where you lived in the UK mm-hmm. in those days. And we even lived in London, but, you know, that was southwest London. And was Blondie, like, a jumping-off point for... Because I know, like, was it Rapture, the first US number one to have a rap in it? And then um, Andy Warhol's relationship with Debbie Harry, like, was there... I don't know, was it a jumping-off point for understanding different things, like art or different types of music? Or did you just stick to Blondie? I, um... I think I think I went through a few bands. I mean, you know, I, I think we were definitely me and a sort of set of friends. 
were definitely enthusiastic about Blondie just because, you know, you know, Debbie Harry was just a gorgeous mm-hmm. woman, a gorgeous, unattainable woman. You sort of like, oh, you know, we're, that, that, that's the sort of woman we don't want to go out with. Mm-hmm. You know, she was just sort of spectacular. In a, in a, in a, in a, in a slight, I mean, we didn't, and, and don't get me wrong, we didn't know any of the backstory. You, 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 you know, if you watch biopics of Blondie the band, you know, mm-hmm. there's quite a backstory to, you know, her and Chris Stein and all that sort of thing. You, you don't know any of that mm-hmm. in those days, but seemed a lot more sort of, you know, edgy than, you know, the, the two women in Abba or, mm-hmm. or, or, or the equivalent, or Kate Bush or yeah. people like that. But yeah, I, so I think, I, I don't, I, so I, I, I wasn't say a fan of Talking Heads who were about the same time, at the time, I mean, I am now, but mm-hmm. I, so I, I didn't say, oh no, there's a set of music, which is why she popped into my head, because I think it was definitely really just the sort of lead singer of the band mm. that was the sort of attraction. The music was great, but, yeah. you know, was the, was the attraction. But I think I listened to a lot of music and actually ended up listening to probably a combination of sort of, you know, the, the sort of two-tone Scar revival stuff and sort of new romantic bands who sort of, again, came out of that, which was much more a British thing, I think, mm. than, a, than a US thing. And I think I think more so in those days... Than now, I guess. Although maybe maybe I'm wrong. You not only you know like the music, but you got a you got a sort of sense of um, you know what you wanted to look like out of it. I mean, you romantic was as much about how they looked as uh, and and two tone was a bit like that as well. You know, and and I was quite enthusiastic about music because then I ended up as a DJ at um, university. Did you play a lot of Blondie then? No. <laughs> No, that's a funny thing, isn't it? In the space of what uh, three or four years, what you thought was just fantastic, but I have to say it was a lot about how Debbie Harry looked. It was like massively uncool mm-hmm. by the time I went to university. <laughs> um, you might have got away with playing Heart of Glass in the middle of a set, <laughs> just as a bit of sort of tongue in cheek retro thing. Yeah. But that, but you know, then because um, I'd even gone beyond two tone. So, so there was a, there was a. Uh, we had three of us who did the DJing, and and one one of the guys was very sort of contemporary in his music taste. Uh, and when you and when you do sort of university discos, there's a lot of people who want to hear stuff from now. Mm-hmm. One one of the guys was a big sort of sixties soul, um, so he had he had a, a lot of his sister's seven inch sixties soul records, which went down very well. And then I was a sort of the the sort of chap in the middle who. You know, had quite a lot of new romantic stuff, quite quite like the new romantic stuff, but quite a lot, also like quite quite a lot of the sort of British sort of jazz funk stuff or American funk stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so things like Africa Bambata and mm-hmm. like that, and Soul Sonic Force and um, um, George Clinton. And then there was um, you know Grandmaster Flash and then mm-hmm. um, Sugar Hill Gang and a whole load of things that came in. So and that was very. That, that that was the stuff. If you didn't want to listen to contemporary stuff, and some people did, which which wouldn't mean anything now because they were they were shit bands then, mm-hmm. um, so they'd never stand the test of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but bands like Art of Noise or Yellow, which is a, which it was a, a, about as much dance music as there was because sort of real dance music was just a bit of a nineties thing. Um, so there's a bunch of people who wanted to listen to that that sort of stuff, and so you had to have some, or you didn't just you just didn't get booked. But then um, the sort of slightly cooler people liked sort of funk and jazz, and and, and then the sixty soul stuff always went very went down very well. 
Um, so people say, oh yeah, but but again, in a sort of, you know, no nobody listened, kind of listened to it at the time. The yeah. people who I was at university with in the early eighties, so they definitely weren't listening to that. But you know, it was cool to like it. Um, well, yeah, and and the nice thing about doing a disco was um, you got to go to a lot of parties. That was our main reason for doing it. Mm-hmm. So we never made. I think we lost money on anything <laughs> we did. So we weren't really very good economic because we had a sort of an entourage. None of us had a car, so we had. This woman called Bev who had a car mm. who we shared a house with, but she fleeced us <laughs> for taking the stuff there and back again. But, you know, otherwise it was, how are you going to move all this equipment? Yeah. Uh, and then our equipment was a bit shit because it was, so we always had to hire some or other bit that had broken, mm. you know, because we were booked to do so. So, you know, we, maybe we lost five or a tenner on each. You know, money was worth a lot more in those days. Mm. But you got to go to a party, which was great. Yeah. And and you were the DJ. Mm-hmm at the party as well. So would you hang by the booth or would you, like, when it wasn't your set, would you just be at the party? We tended to we tended to all be doing it at the same time, sort of a little bit in rotation. Um, so we would tend to be, yeah, all up at the equipment. And you'd, you'd get there a bit early and set up, because everyone was too cool to come early. Mm-hmm. You, you could play some stuff you liked at the start and just, you know, and lark about, because nobody was ever there for the first half hour or an hour. Mm-hmm. Then it Then it filled up. And then, and, and, and then, you know, you could get... We always used to finish with Hawaii, the theme from Hawaii Five-O, <laughs> which uh, people used to love, you know, irrationally, because they were all pissed by then. Yeah. It's not a great piece of music, but... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it was a way of sort of, right, you know, play that and then turn the lights on and then yeah. it's done. Um, it was our sort of signature move at the end. Um, yeah, no, so... Uh, but, it, but it, yeah, so if you come back to the sort of, you know, I, I when I was thinking about this, I do think the whole music thing... I don't know if it's the same today, but the whole music thing then was very much about who you, you know, it was, I, I thought it was very influential. And I think if I think of, not necessarily as much for my, all of my brothers and sisters, but um, certainly some of them, you know, my sister was big, my older sister was a big fan of music, mm. um, sort of earlier music than me, you know, T-Rex and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, and so I think it was sort of, she she definitely went through that sort of teenage girl phase of, you know, having bands she liked, but, you know, not mainstream bands. I think it was a little bit for my brothers, perhaps not as much as it was for, for me. But I th- so I think it can be, you know, really influential in who you, who you decide you're going to be yeah. in the end. So was it just so in terms of Blondie, were you just seeing them on top of the pops? Did you buy the CDs? Did you like read around them? Or? CDs? You don't have CDs in those days. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you haven't seen... You haven't seen my sort of spectacular vinyl collection, uh-huh. which... Um, uh, which is only half the size that it used to be because I had a load of for, for doing the uh, for doing the DJing where we had a whole load of um, 12 inch mm. vinyl which sort of these days you'd never play because it's just you know it's one song or four different treatments of one song mm. Chris took them to a car boot and as you do as you do when you've got kids you go through these various oh we need to we're a bit short for cash what should we do let's do a car boot mm. got loads of stuff we don't need she took half my vinyl collection. And I can't, you know, I, I can't be critical because I, I said, yeah, that's fine. What she did, though, was she took, because, you know, it's just too much to go through and you're quite busy in a car boot. She just like sellotape, not sellotape together, um, rubber banded together like a, I don't know, 20 or 25, mm-hmm. 12 inch singles, 50p the lot. Mm-hmm. And they're like a fiver each. <laughs> that's like, so she just got swamped by people who yeah. were, professionally buying records because you know you get those for mm. you know all of them are in great condition they've been used you know used for djing on 
on some decks that weren't great, but but some of them would have been great. They probably never played either. Yeah. And you probably get 150 quid of records for 50p or something mm-hmm. like that. So she got slaughtered, I think, on those. It did all go, though. Mm-hmm. And still we have, you know, a couple of hundred mm-hmm. vinyl records, but only albums left mm-hmm. now. Yeah. So so um, uh, I probably had the poster. Mm-hmm. That was the main thing. And uh, I liked the first couple of albums. It seems to be a bit of a pattern with me, actually. I like the first couple of albums that people do. Mm-hmm. So Parallel Lines, I think, is a great album. And actually, if you listen to it, as we did in those days, because that was all you, 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 you know, you, you didn't have loads of money. You saved up, you bought a record. Yeah. That was sort of five quid or so in in the money of the day. But five quid was a bit more than it feels like today. And you definitely listen to the whole thing then. Mm-hmm. In a different way to today, where you just listen to tracks you like. There, you listen to the whole album. And so you had, I think you had more of a sense of what the album's like. So, you know, Parallel Lines and that. And I think it's actually a great album with lots of stuff on it that mm-hmm. you never hear played, but mm-hmm. is really gives you a sort of sense of the band at the time. So um, Mike Chapman, who produced Parallel Lines, discussing Blondie, says, they were really, really juvenile in their approach to life, a classic New York underground rock band, and they didn't give a fuck about anything. They just wanted to have fun and didn't want to work too hard getting it. Hmm. Was that a sense that you got? And was that appealing? You definitely, yeah, you, when you watch them, you definitely got that sense that it was all a bit of a big joke. Although I think they were quite an accomplished band, despite that. And mm. if you listen to Parallel Lines... As distinct from a couple of the albums that come after, which were, you know, which were well done, well executed. I I saw a sort of making of, of one of the later albums, the one, whichever one had Heart of Glass, which I don't think, I think that comes in the one after Parallel Lines, I think. And whoever produced that track said they were so appalling as a band. He, he, he said they gave me a run through. And his heart sank because he thought, God, this is just going to be so hard to record. They just can't play in time. So he had to sort of deconstruct it, even to the extent of, I don't know if you know the track, but it's got a lot of sort of... It was on Parallel Lines. Oh, was it? Okay. It must have been him. So even the drummer playing the hi-hat at the start, he he said I just had to get him in the studio for two days to get him to play it. (sighs) with the right rhythm yeah. to it, you know, in you know, in time because he was that shit. He couldn't do it. Um and then sort of every stage of it. And when you put it all together well, it sounds like a fantastic I mean apparently they you know, they could never play it like that because mm-hmm. they as a band they were you know not not very together and didn't really care about it. And and that's very punk, isn't it? I mean, yeah. you know, I don't think punk bands trying to play together that much either. Mm-hmm. And if they did it was by accident. So I you know, you could get away with it being a punk band, but um he said, you know, it's just given that they were new wave, you just weren't going to get away with it. Mm-hmm. And you had to be tight. And I actually think it was I, in some ways I think that was good for them because I think it made them a better tighter band, although I think it took a lot of work. So That's 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 easy. Probably programmed on the machine. So this bit, he had to spend two days in the studio just to get the drummer to be able to do it in time. Yeah. Because it runs through the whole mm. track. You sort of think you've got to do that with every bit of it. Yeah. Shit. But you know, they seem they seem to have a good time. <laughs> and, and, and actually, the rest of the album is worth. I have to say, the rest of the album is worth a listen. I think it's slightly. Uh, Under it was fade away and radiate. Oh, yeah. There was something sort of. 
you know, there's something always psychedelic about it. So I think, you know, there's a lot there's a lot that goes on on the album, which, you, of course, you never hear unless you listen to it, which we all did because that was all you had, you know, that cassette back and forth, back and forth. Um, you know, I think maybe maybe some of the other stuff is underrated. Mm. You know, it's funny how many of those albums, though, they're, I mean, I'm sure they're remastered for other reasons, but they're, re, you know, they're endlessly remastered. Partly, I'm sure, because recording wasn't that great, partly because they were shit as a band. And did you have an interest in the other band members at all? Was it just specifically Debbie Harry? Oh, only hating on Chris Stein, who was her husband. Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, he was her husband and I wasn't, I guess. Uh, yeah. And he was he was a guitarist, no? Yeah, I think he, yeah, he was a guitarist. I think he was a guitarist. Because I'm sure I read that there was, like, Debbie Harry was so important that the band members started wearing badges. It said something like, Blondie's the name of the band, because people thought she was Blondie. Yes. Well, they, they, I mean, there's, there's sort of, I think it's five band members, isn't it? So there's Christine and Debbie Harry, who who were an item. Mm-hmm. And, and I think were sort of the genesis for the band. The bassist and one of the other, must have been one of the other guitarists, or maybe he was a keyboard player, I don't know, were not that closely connected to the band. And I think, you know, I think did the first few albums, but then, you know, the band split up and they dropped away. And the drummer, I think, sort of sits between them. So I, I think the drummer may still tour with them every so often Mm -hmm. but has a bit of a drug problem so he's not that reliable because they did that they had this thing where when they were inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame which was not that long ago Mm -hmm. the the stuff that was referenced was their early stuff so all the early lineup to the the early five band members turn up Mm -hmm. but but you know debbie harry and chris stein haven't played with them for 30 years or something and they have another band now so when they said oh we want you to do a performance so Debbie Harry and Chris Stein were like, okay, yeah, we'll perform with our band. Mm. And the other band members said, no, that's really shit. Because there's a documentary made of it. That's really shit. You should play with us. Mm. And they're sort of, but we haven't played with you for 30 years. And that's not <laughs> that's not who Blondie is anymore. Yeah. So this is, I think, a bit of a tension. I, and I don't think they played with them, actually. I think it all went a bit awkward. Mm-hmm. Over another quote at you? Yeah, do it. This is about um, MTV, I guess. This is from um, Sue Stewart and Cheryl Garrett. Signed, sealed, and delivered true life stories of women in pop. The success of the 24-hour music channel MTV in the US and the advent of cable TV in Britain means that the selling power of the pop video is ever-increasing. The emphasis on the look has meant that more than ever, an image has to be carefully planned and chosen. Greater variety ironically results in more attention to image, so instead of losing its tyranny, image continues to impose its expectations on all those who enter the world of pop. So did you feel that with the rise of MTV and cable television that's Music became more visual. Is that would that be a fair statement? Uh, yeah, I think yeah, I think it did actually. Um, but it's do you know? I think I wonder if that's been a problem more or more as much for men mm-hmm. as it has been for women in bands. But and the only reason I say that is if you were a woman in a band, I think you, I think it was just an always an expectation that you looked great. Mm-hmm. You know, because um, I'm trying to go back in time and think of. Uh, women singers in bands who didn't have to look great. So I think it was just an expectation, like there always was. Mm-hmm. But often the blokes looked terrible mm-hmm. or just looked as they looked because you didn't really see them very much. Yeah, Maybe they looked better at the time. You know, you, you look at them in, you know, they got long greasy hair. You know, you look at them yeah. I mean, you'd, today. You'd still have people, wouldn't you, like Elvis, who were sort of sold on sex appeal. Yeah, yeah. But if you, but um, in contrast, I mean, I, I'm going to f- throw a few bands that you don't know. Uh-huh. We think of, you know, Jethro Tull or people like that. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, Led Zeppelin, Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin. I mean, he was you know, had great sex appeal as well. So I, I, I think it was true, but I don't think you could get away with looking not the part. Mm. 
sorry, I think you could as a man in the sort of 60s and 70s, although I think you definitely did better if you were like David Casty and sort of mm-hmm. fantastically well turned out. It was a bit of a sort of sex symbol, I think, and some of the Osmonds and people like that. But I think I, I'm trying to think back, you know, for a band where the women didn't have to look great. And I think they always did. You, know, you think of before Debbie Harry and Blondie, um, you know, you, the two women in ABBA, um, who were beautiful women, your chaps are a bit dumpy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you think of Susie Quattro's, you know, sort of glam rock, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, they 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 all, I think they all were all very attractive. Mm-hmm. And I think that was that was probably part of it. Because, you know, if you didn't have MTV, you still had posters and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And in the days before MTV and when you had two TV channels, that it was a poster on your wall mm-hmm. that you looked at. So it was almost in a way like the, the societal pressure was there for women, regardless of if they were yes, involved in pop. Exactly. And then it suddenly became a point where this is these few men in pop, it suddenly became, and they had a pressure part Yeah, because you think of the sort of rise of the boy band, which essentially the, you know, I mean, the Beatles were a boy band and the Beach Boys were a boy band and, you know, and the Monkeys were a boy band, you know. So so it was around before we had Boy Zone and Take That and all that sort of thing. But now that in some ways the band is all about, you know, Maybe everybody sings and it's all about image, which is more of a thing I think you get today than you used to. Because it definitely used to be a sort of guitar, bass, drum, singer lineup, mm. maybe keyboards lineup. Um, so there was somebody at the front and a lot of people at the back. I think that I'd say a bigger proportion of bands are like, take that, you know, where everybody's a singer, everybody's a dancer and, mm. and somebody else is playing the music. Yeah. I mean, this um, that quote's from, like, from 1999. So I'd imagine even now with, Things like Instagram, where I don't, it, it, I guess it's more just more constant, I guess. Yeah, and and the other thing is, I mean, you you'll understand this when you get old. Mm-hmm. All young people look great. <laughs> I mean, they do. So you know, if you just get a bunch of young people together and shove them in a band, you know, even the sort of you know, if you pull up a picture of Blondie, you know, mm-hmm. they're all sort of you know early twenties, you know. Mm-hmm. They, they all look youthful and they look great, don't they? In a way that when you have sort of older, you know, and some people carry it on, you know, I think the. The Stones have a way of sort of, from the sort of seats you and I can afford to buy, <laughs> they still look like the Stones, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> we've got up close, they, they wouldn't look like yeah. the Stones, they look like the Stones' granddads. But, and I think that, because it does seem to be a sort of, you know, more often than not, it's a, a young person's thing for sort of current music. Um, it's not true of sort of, bat, you know, like the Stones or these days, you know, sort of bands who still tour who I might like or you might like and get away with not looking the same yeah I think I had a good quote about this actually from the same I'm just find it um, given the pop world's emphasis on looks a woman moving into her fourth decade is simply not on now that Debbie Harry has crossed the line she's candid about her fears and is attempting to create a new career for herself as an actress but it is only mainstream western pop and rock which sets such a premium on youth for jazz aristocrats like Sarah Vaughan and Ella Fitzgerald yeah. age and reputations are seen as proof of authenticity and skill a link with the music's history, respected almost like vulnerable museum pieces. I'm glad I saw her before she dies, breathed one Nina Simone fan at her season at Ronnie Scott's Club in London in early 1984. Miss Simone is just 50. Yeah, it's funny you say that, actually, because it's definitely true of sort of contemporary music, isn't it? If you, if you want to be big in pop now, you, you'll be in your 20s mm-hmm. and you'll look great. Of course, it goes without saying. You'll be musically, you'll have to be great as well, because that's, I guess, that's entry stakes, isn't it? But you know, you've got to be the whole package, as you say. I think if you've got a fan base, I still think Blondie in in their current lineup, which is Debbie Harry and Chris Stein and the others, I, I still think they've got a very loyal following mm-hmm. for whom Debbie Harry is still the sort of 
same gorgeous person that she was, you mm-hmm. know, 30, 40 years ago. And she still looks great. But I, th- I, I think there is something about, you're right, there's something about, you know, each crest of the wave mm-hmm. in contemporary music, you know, you, you you have to look the part and be perfect or or you can't pull it off. But uh, But you raise an interesting other point, because where I think it, whereas I think for a solid fan base... You're loyal to the band despite, you know, the change in appearance. I've seen a few bands who I really remember, or, or sorry, artists who I really remember as being great, where they lost their musicality. Mm-hmm. And that really doesn't work. So I went to see Don McLean in Birmingham in the last year. Don McLean did American Pie. Mm-hmm. But, you know, did some fantastic stuff. And it was quite sort of softly sung at the time, you know, sort of ballad stuff. But he, he, his voice is just not as it was. You mm. know, if you think of how your voice is in your 20s, you know, if you're singing softly, you've probably got great projection. Um, he was really amplified and he was really having to strain mm. and he just sounded terrible. I mean, I'm always sad I saw Don McLean because mm. I really wanted to see him because American Pie, my sister loved Don McLean and it sort of filtered into my sort of psyche and I sort of picked him up later on and really liked the music and the lyrics but it's almost spoilt it in a way mm. seeing him now not you know not you know all credit to him for still doing it but it's just it's not as it sounds but you can't take that away then mm. oh it's simply Al Jarreau you know mm. um, and I think when you lose the musicality mm. even with a fan base mm-hmm. I think that maybe that's the point at which it doesn't work anymore yeah have you, have you seen Blondie live uh, no we and, and we almost we almost did because Chris said they're playing. I think they were in that set who played Q Gardens. You know, Q Gardens puts on some stuff and they were playing yeah. Q Gardens. She said, Oh, why wouldn't we? And I listened. And I think Debbie Harry's voice similarly is struggling a bit. Mm. Um, so I said, mm. Oh, I don't think we should. I just don't. <laughs> but maybe that's a bit of an image thing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's tough. But so I think it's got better. I think bands have more longevity, mm. longevity than they did previously. Um, in fact, OMD are touring again. Next week. I'm thinking to myself, shall I go? I'm I'm on to sort of slim pickings though, because Je- uh, Chris has said, look, I've seen them twice; they were great, but I, it's not my music, so I don't want to go and see them anymore. Yeah. Um, I did. I think I've done. I did a gig by myself a couple of weeks ago. I didn't. I didn't hate the experience. It was kind of because um, because I, I didn't know anyone who liked the artist. You always, I feel like, if I bring someone, you always have that feeling of what, making sure that they're enjoying it, and then that takes over the main emotion of just being within the. Yeah, that's a good point actually. Because I went to see a comedy. I Stephen Stephen Merchant, who I think is a really tall, and I think he was co-writer of The Office, mm. and he did a stand-up. Um, he was doing a stand-up tour, Hello Ladies stand-up tour, and no nobody was interested to go, or I don't think it fell. Um, so I went on my own to that, which which it, I loved it. Mm. It, it was a, it's a little bit weird because I think I'd got the end of a row by the aisle, you know, mm. you saw, oh, that'd be a handy seat to be in. So I only had one person next to me, but it's still the odd, you know, they've come as a couple and then yeah. there's a seat next to them and then some person on their own comes. Yeah. So there's a sort of slight awkwardness of, yes, okay, I haven't got any friends. Okay, look, <laughs> let's get over it, okay? Yeah. Let's just enjoy the comedy. So there's just that, and that, which is much more, I guess, about you than anybody else. But yeah, I could see that. I uh, and Maybe I should do that. Maybe I should do that with um, OMD. I don't know. There's something about bands where... Particularly if you're going to sort of go wild, mm. um, 
you feel more at ease going wild if there's yeah. sort of a bunch of you rather than doing it on your own. You just sort of think, oh, with everybody sort of thinking, he's just mental. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, like you said, it's, it's the time before or where you're sort of sitting around doing nothing. That's when it yeah. feels most. But once the concert starts, I yes, like yes, that's, yeah. And then I did a, uh, another gig recently where I was, um, I went seated for the first time in quite a while. Okay. Um very much enjoyed that experience, being able to go to the loo whenever you want, being able to go to the bar. Are there concerts where you're not seated? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you go from, until I don't really get <laughs> Did you go from because I the transition I've heard is that you start off being wanting to get as close to the front as possible so you can make eye contact with the performer and then you slowly make your way back for comfort as it goes along. As, yeah. you, as the years go by. Yeah, it's true. I remember going and seeing some that that some of these uh I hadn't thought of this actually until you said it, but I remember there was a there was a like a music venue. It was more a sort of disco venue, and you would go there on a Friday night or Saturday night. Uh, it was just a sort of dance venue. But every so often they would have a live band, and the bands because you've, you've got to get bands out of London, so mm. it's not going to be anybody famous wants to play there. But there were a lot of the sort of sixties bands, like you know, um, um, the Real Thing and people like that. So people who had had a couple of decent mm-hmm. hits in the sixties you know, actually wanted to carry on because that was their livelihood. But then, you know, I guess had to play smaller and smaller venues. And they still, I think, you know, in, in one form or another, they still knock about. So I think maybe maybe Earth, Earth, Wind and Fire would play. Maybe I'm deluding myself. Maybe it wasn't Earth, Wind and Fire. But some decent band played. And, and they were lovely bands. So at the end, they'd shake the hands of um, <laughs> everybody. You know, they'd come up to front of the stage and shake all that. Yeah, yeah, no, I've definitely shaken the hands. I, I don't think it was Earth, Wind and Fire, but I was shaking the hands with... Somebody yeah. from one of those bands, which was a, a, a nice touch. But yes, I I remember unseated, and that was a sort of music venue, so there was no seating at all. Then I uh, I used to go to the Hammersmith Apollo a lot to mm-hmm. see bands. That's where people like Duran Duran, No Empty, Spandau Ballet, Bampe. And you could do this thing called um, um, stall standing. Mm-hmm. So this, um, which I hadn't really realised before I started buying, was really shit. So... It's seated at yeah. the bottom, but they'll sell a bunch of tickets. But really, the tickets are, you're not allowed, to, you're not supposed to go down the aisles mm-hmm. into where the seats are. You're meant to stand at that back bit, you know, okay, sort of yeah. the circulation bit at the back and mm-hmm. sort of watch round the corner. Yeah. I mean, it's fucking hopeless, isn't it? <laughs> but that was all the tickets. You know, by the time you're buying, by po- you know, buying them by post, by the time you get there, that's all that's left. Mm-hmm. And of course, what happens at all those gigs is sort of immediately the band comes on, the main band comes on. Everybody jumps up because yeah. the sort of young people. Everybody jumps up and rushes to stage, anyway. so you can then get away with sort of sneaking down. You don't. You generally don't get caught. And the best thing we found is when everybody gets up and starts pushing forward, there's normally that on the very last row of seats in the stalls. There's normally a wall behind it, uh-huh. and if you climb up <laughs> on the wall, sit on the wall, yeah. which they didn't seem to stop you from doing, you um you could see across the heads of everybody who was sort of standing so you know if you if you don't stand up in in stalls you don't see anything so mm. everybody is almost forced to stand up you sit on that wall you've got a view across everybody yeah. to the front some, some great uh, and, and the chip the tickets were were a bit cheaper which was great as well yeah i think i'm that person that gig that everyone hates where i'm sort of quite oh, tall God, and just yeah. so i get a decent view but then sometimes my conscience gets the better of me and i try and sort of slump and then my back hurts and i kind of oh. want the gig to end but um it's yeah, that's that's um, yeah, that's difficult, isn't it? Because I always think, oh, I'm yeah, I I, I have the worst time at gigs because I'm quite short, mm-hmm. and so you can't see, you know, you really can't see anything. And and even if I go to somebody, there's just somebody tall sat in front mm-hmm. of me, so like, oh, it's gonna be terrible. I yeah. don't see anything at all. You know, normally they're quite good at getting the seats, so they're slightly offset. 
say yeah. you see past somebody's shoulder, but you know, maybe you're right if you sort of self conscious about it. You'd be ideal though at Glastonbury. Like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, Imagine just somebody really on your shoulders and there. Yeah. An eagle eye view of the whole thing. And also, I found I've started calling them tall people columns where one person will start and then because no one will stand behind them, yeah. I get a clear like way to get close to the stage because I can just go and stand behind that person and then someone does it behind me and you end up with this long line of tall people. Yeah. And then Stephen Merchant at the back. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm really, yeah, well, yeah, not a problem. <laughs> Not a problem I have. Um, and that's the other thing I like about festivals is... Because I, I really like going to live music. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen a ton of live music in the last 10 years, much more so than in the sort of 30 years before that, or maybe the 20 years before that, because you just tend not to go when you have kids. Mm. Um, so certainly since I sort of stopped you know, working full-time, I go and see a lot more, because you don't need to worry about, you know... If you're up a bit late because yeah. um, I remember with my first job I went to some gigs where the band didn't come on till one in the morning was, uh, <laughs> you know down in London yeah. which is just carnage you know they finish at two or two thirty then got to mm-hmm. try and get home after yeah. that or crash on somebody's place and you've definitely got work the next day mm-hmm. so you don't don't tend to do it that much so yeah maybe it's a sort of retirees thing maybe that's why all these bands kind of you know people got more money to go to mm-hmm. see bands it's a lot more um, it, it's worth worthwhile bands carrying on it's a bit like the Auburn Arena you know there's a certain set of people who play the Auburn Arena because that's what they can fill yeah but so we saw the Stranglers there I mean the Stranglers you know then if, if you like that kind of thing they're sort of a bit more of a I guess they'd be a bit more of a punk band I mean they're post-punk now but yeah. they're a bit more of a punk band I don't know if they'd quite consider themselves a punk band it was funny actually because it was you know the Stranglers. you know the Stranglers? I know of the Stranglers. Golden Brown. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. What you realise is they've got about two or three songs like Golden Brown. Mm-hmm. And then all the rest is punk. <laughs> <laughs> so we went to see them, uh, Chris and I, at the Auburn Arena. So I think, oh yeah, we quite like the Stranglers, don't we? Um, <laughs> it was just like a punk concert. Yeah. Well, it was a punk <laughs> concert. And we were right at the back, upstairs right at the back. Yeah. And halfway through, Chris said, I'm going to have to go outside, it's too loud. <laughs> And lots of people pogoing at the front and yeah. old people pogoing yeah. at the front and trying to spit at them. And it's great. It's great. <laughs> can't really remember that being a thing, but it definitely was a thing. Um, so this is still continuing with um, Stuart and Garrett and it's sort of about image. So punk brought about a new awareness of image and manipulation. Singers such as Susie and Paulie Murray of Penetration fought hard to be seen as part of the band rather than the focus. Yeah. For a long time, the Banshees refused to be interviewed separately and resisted using pictures of themselves on record sleeves or in press ads. The idea of women as equals not to be unduly picked out of the group persisted. By the time of the shambolic post-punk wave of bands began to make their presence felt, dressing up on stage had all but gone. Yeah, I don't think they ever pulled that off, though. I mean, <laughs> that, they, that might have been their aspiration, yeah. and it clearly was their aspiration. But um, whatever, you know, whatever your intent is... Yeah. Um, if the audience don't agree with you mm-hmm. and in Susie and the Banshees they view it as sort of Debbie Harry type mm-hmm. blondie setup, yeah. then um, it's very I think it's very hard to escape that which yes probably presents an awkwardness for them I, I mean I guess you can choose not to engage in it yeah. can't you I guess it, it, the thing that came to my mind was the cover of Parallel Lines, where it is the guys are all wearing suits and Debbie Harry is wearing yeah. a different colour, where it's very much like she. Yeah. But I guess she's also she also is like the lead singer, which does tend to be a, a role where they kind of separate that person yeah. from the rest of the group. And I think they were definitely, uh, I mean, they were definitely post-punk in that sense. All the, all the other trick, I'm just looking them up now, the other trick was to um, 
Uh, I'm just trying to check I'm writing this. It was to be like the, the slits and be an all-girl, all-woman band uh, who they were. Uh, so they were an all-woman punk band. So maybe then the lead singer won't get objectified in the same way. Or maybe they will. Who knows? <laughs> That's objectification for you. Yeah. Oh, they, they, they put slits are called post-punk. My God, who was punk then <laughs> if the slits weren't? Maybe it was just the Sex Pistols. So let's go for another of those massive quotes. Here. Yeah, so this is back to um, uh, Kostenbaum, who sometimes I, I feel like he writes really eloquently and sometimes I feel like we should be worried for Debbie Harry's safety. So, <laughs> uh, um, In the late 1970s, I listened to Blondie with a fanaticism founded on my belief that Debbie Harry's vocal delivery would give me the tips of differentiating the genuine from the fake in the apocalyptic world of romantic love where I was a befuddled amateur working intermittently on my heterosexuality as if it were the last Sunday crossword puzzle, a confusing grid of boxes I had not given up trying to fill. Every inflection of Harry's voice I followed, memorised, sought to explain. Why did she approach a cry or a cheer? Why did she flatten a vowel, slur or a consonant? Why did an aluminum aura complicate a phrase? Was she angry, infatuated, indifferent, or was she turning emotionally into an amusing diversion? Yeah, no, I get the point. I get the okay. point, actually. I, yeah, if you... You know how, I, I, I'm not sure if we're, we're all like this, but certainly I felt like this, you know, when you're sort of 14, 15, 16, and, um, and, I, and I went to all boys schools. So it wasn't like I bumped into, you know, girls at all at school. Mm-hmm. Um, I had this sort of odd period, which, which, which actually is enormously helpful when we sort of moved from London to the South Coast. I, I wasn't old enough to go to the grammar school, so I had one year at middle school before. I was old enough to go to the grammar school and it was a mixed school, which actually went, when I went to meet, well, I mean, my dad to meet the uh, master and I had this horrible realisation there were girls at school and I said, well, I'm definitely not coming here. Dad. I just can't, you know, I, I can't, you know, in that sort of, oh my God, I feel so awkward. About yeah. it. In fact, I really enjoyed it. It was really good for me. Mm-hmm. And I think sort of, you know, mixed sex schools are, you know, very, very sensible. But then I went on to the grammar school. It was boys' grammar school. There was a girls' grammar school somewhere away. And so you spend your whole time sort of, I guess, as sort of, you know, 14, 15, 16, you know, fixating on what, mm-hmm. what is it that sort of girls are interested in so you can make yourself more interesting mm-hmm. to them. And and sort of music, sort of, you know, pop music is, I guess, one of those ways in which you can do it, and particularly if the sort of singer is somebody who you aspiration you still think wow wouldn't it be great to go out with something like that mm. and then you know how do they think about things yeah. how do they um, so I can, I can I can identify with that I think it consumes at that age it just consumes a disproportionate amount of your sort of <laughs> you know mind space doesn't it sort mm. of you know what are the opposite sex attracted to and how can I be more like that mm-hmm. and and of course as is the way you know at that age, life is beset with so many more disappointments than successes. Um, I used to find anyway, and that, and seemingly I think is the way for um, you know, the vast majority of us. And at the time, or looking back now, was there a quality in Debbie Harry's voice as a singer that you really like, or was it more visual? Or no, I think there was actually she and and she it was both. There was a visual uh, sort of. Dimension and, and not in the sort of you know in the in the sort of you know just being a sort of attractive woman because she so didn't care about that mm. or, or at least the way she projected she sort of so didn't care about that and and there's a great video of her I think doing Top of the Pops where because they 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 were sort of 
punky enough that they um, thumb their noses a bit at things like Top of the Pops. So she's singing on Top of the Pops and she's waving the microphone backwards and forwards <laughs> so that it really wouldn't sound like that if it were live. Yeah. It really wouldn't sound like they're sort of making the point that, well, this isn't live, is it? And, and taking the piss a bit. But in a sort of, you know, nonchalant sort of way, you know, because yeah. um, some people do that obviously I think some of the punk bands did it obviously which was they just didn't play or anything which was embarrassing for everybody uh, but there was a sort of an attitude and assassiness to it which was great but, but uh, yeah but no, I, I thought she was a great singer as well um, and again slightly different to stuff that had gone um, before I think that's all I've got so do you want to wrap, well, up, wrap up with uh, what is your relationship with Blondie now do you listen to them a lot do you listen to them I, do you know I, I, t- I don't listen to them loads now Although when I listen to them, I am transported mm-hmm. back. But I, I think I went on quite a, a musical journey, which, which, which I think I, I thought was you know really influential. If I think of that sort of fifteen, sixteen up to sort of, you know, probably in reality, you know, maybe maybe twenty five, maybe the end of university, maybe sort of twenty one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it featured enormously for me and. Uh, you know, I'm I'm the sort of fourth child of five children. Um, so whereas I think, you know, if you're of the eldest, you you know, you definitely have to work out who you are. Yeah. And sort of, and my eldest brother, I think, has that great sense of himself. I, the experience I had was sort of being one of five, and then one going to university. So there's four like four of you, and then another one going to university, and there's three. So this sort of shrinking set that gives you your identity just at about that time that was happening for me so I if I think of I I did GCSEs when my brother is two years older than me went off to university and we, he and I were very close he used to share a room and that's that sort of thing and that was a big dislocation for me so in that sort of period 15 16 I'm the sort of oldest kid at home I'm in the sixth form I think it was really influential in f- um, helping me work out you know who I thought I wanted to be mm. so no, it was it was great for for me but i think there are bands i would refer back to now mm. more so than blondie yeah all right let's call that yeah it's yeah. a round cheers boom <laughs>